Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Soul Talk podcast. This is another special one for me, actually a very special one. Uh, My guest today is someone I have wanted to uh, interview and invite onto Soul Talk for Since the beginning, actually, he's someone that has touched my life. His books have inspired me over the years. Uh, Many books, you know, uh, A Wise Heart. um, What else? I mean, Teachings of the Buddha, um, Living Dharma. I mean, so many books he has that I think have inspired uh, many people around the world. Maybe you're one of them. No Time Like the Present, another beautiful one. Uh, Joy, Right Where You Are. And so... Uh, he's a trained Buddhist monk in the monasteries of Thailand since 1974. Has been teaching meditation. That's quite a few years. I think he's a he's a pioneer uh, in my mind, a legend, uh, someone who has uh, set the uh, foundations and the structure of the consciousness meditation spiritual movement uh, in our culture for decades now. So I'm very excited to have the amazing Jack Cornfield on Soul Talk. Welcome, Jack. Well, thank you, Coot. Um, I think if you talk with my wife, you would tone down the introduction, but nevertheless, <laughs> I'm very happy to be with you. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. As I said, I've, I've really, really been looking forward to it tremendously. Um, I have many questions for you, but I, I love just, just to give a context, especially for those that may not know of you. I'm always fascinated as to, you know, how people especially spiritual teachers and meditation teachers and, you know, folks in this field got started. Was there, what was it that inspired you on the path uh, of meditation and spirituality? Was there a moment? Was there a pain? Was there a trauma? Was, was, was it kind of something from your family that was passed down? I'm really curious what the beginning of the, were. Yeah. All of the above. I had some spiritual interest and somebody gave me a book called the third eye by this guy, uh, T. Lobson Rampa, who'd been a plumber in London and fell out of a tree and hmm. switched souls with a Tibetan Lama, or so he claimed. Um, and they were fantastic stories. I was a teenager. I was in college and Ivy League University doing pre-med. And then I took this course in Buddhism and Asian studies from a great old master. And they talked about the Buddhist teachings that life has suffering and it has causes and as a way to end the suffering. And, you know, Western education, uh, there I got philosophy and mathematics and chemistry and history. Nobody talked about how to deal with my anger and fear and trauma and insecurity. And my father was a, a brilliant scientist who was also violent, paranoid. He beat my mother a lot. He was, he could blow up over anything. 
And they didn't talk about that in education. And I heard this, I said, suffering and, and a path to its end. So I switched. And when I left uh, Dartmouth, instead of going to the military, which was the main thing happening then in Vietnam, you had to you know, register for the draft. I signed up for the Peace Corps. I went to the same place. I went to the Mekong River Valley to work on medical teams in the, in the kind of remote villages looking for a meditation master because I'd read about these old Zen masters. And I thought, is there somebody still out there who can help me? And where also I can learn all this stuff. And just to answer your question another way, I'm going to read a very short poem by a brilliant Latino poet, Juan Ramon Jimenez. He writes, yo no so yo, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I'm indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. And I read it because it speaks to that part of all of us. My teacher called it the one who knows, that we know that we're not just here to, you know, fulfill just to get a, have a good family and get a nice house and those things. They're all fine to have, um, but that there's something deeper. You, you know, your, your work is about the soul work, and that's really more who we are. If something in us knows this, and we hear it, we go, yes. I need this too. I need this as much as I need water and food. Before I ask a, a bit more about your life, and I'm just curious, from your understanding and perspective, what, why do we incarnate? What is, what is the purpose of this life? Is well, obviously uh, not just to wake up and make money and, you know. I mean, those are, those, are, those are fine. It's nice to have money when you can. I wish everybody had it too. So that's it. Um, you because, know, because 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 there there seems to be like so much suffering in life, so much pain. I mean, I Ra know, I, I know. Krishna, right? Yes. The great Indian Indian mystic Ramakrishna was asked, "Why was there evil in the world?" And he said, "To thicken the plot, to make to the the dance world. and the drama uh, more interesting." If you go to the movies, um, mm. and everybody's smiling and happy, and they all you know have a beautiful sunset and a nice cruise and come home, nobody will sign up for that movie. <laughs> in the movie and watch people develop and learn and grow. So one one re one answer. There's like there isn't an answer. There are answers. One answer is that it's a way for our spirit or whatever you want to call it um, to awaken, to come to terms. Like that poem I just read, to remember who we really are, which is consciousness, which is spirit, and not just the physical things. Um, another is to go through difficulties. This is from like, Zen teacher Carl Fried Durkheim. He said, the person who's really on the way and mm. falls upon hard times in the world will not, as a consequence, turn toward those friends who offer them refuge and comfort and encourage the old way to survive. Rather, they'll seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity 
and the spirit of true awakening of body, heart, and mind. And so one part of the answer is we're here to learn a kind of freedom beyond our body and the cultural conditioning. And another little answer to add from my friend Maledoma Somme, who's mm -hmm. a West African medicine man. He's in Miami, actually, um, from Burkina Faso, who also has a couple of PhDs from the Sorbonne and Brandeis and so forth, an amazing guy. But he said for the Dagara people, his people in West Africa, they believe, I love this image, that everyone is born with a certain cargo. And they use that word because they're the cargo ships that ply up and down the rivers of West Africa. And your purpose in life is to deliver your cargo. And the cargo means you're born with certain gifts. Um, and you're, you're born into a community and time and place where your task and the fulfillment of your life is to offer what's good in your heart and your gifts. How these sound to you? Mm. Deep. 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 <laughs> Fortunately, you know, it's somebody else. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, but the, the, like, can, can we grow through, uh, like, does growth have to be through suffering? Does it have to be through so much pain? Can, can we grow through just joy and, and, and bliss? And I mean, so, so brutal things sometimes happen, you know, heartbreak and death of, of one's children and yes. abuse and, and abuse and, and, and yeah. racism and, and, you know, genocide and things like that. Um, so, you know, you ask this question, can we, do we only grow, do we grow through suffering? My teacher, Ajahn Chah used to say, where do you grow more, the suffering or the good times? And we tend to grow more through suffering, but yes. do we grow through suffering or can we grow through, through beauty and joy? through love, through making love, through hearing an amazing piece of music, through walking in the high mountains, through something, going in this sacred temple, remembering who we are. And of course, in Zen, you know, is it this or that? And the answer is yes. We grow in all these ways. And some of us are very loyal to our suffering because we have a lot of trauma, as I did. And we can focus on that. Um, but it becomes important at some point also to move beyond it, as Nelson Mandela did, walking out of 27 years in Robben Island prison, um, saying they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. Or you think of Guillaume Apollinaire, a French writer, philosopher. He says, now and then, it's good to pause in our pursuit of happiness and just be happy. <laughs> and, 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 and this, too, is a possibility. So all of it, we're here to experience, I wouldn't say it's a choice or a philosophy, it's the reality of human incarnation to experience the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And then the question is, who are we really in this? And can we awaken to that? As that first poem said, can we remember who we really are, which is consciousness itself, loving awareness born into this body, having these experiences, and it will leave this body. Uh, can we remember our connection with something so much greater than the sto small stories that the culture tells us? Where does one start when, let's say, uh, let's say someone's listening in and perhaps they feel as though they've been scarred so much 
uh, been through so much you know, un- injustice or pain or you know hurt in in the human life, and they're listening, saying, "Well, okay, to remember, but uh, I'm so messed up, Jack. I'm so uh, uh, so much pain. There's so much anger. There's so much hurt. That I, that I, you know, there's so much rage inside." It, they're hearing, but they're not necessarily remembering. How do they move from where they are to that to that place or that point of remembering? So, Kud, first of all, I want to pause and put my hand on my heart and thank you for that question, because often people think about some spiritual perspective um, as a, a kind of bypass yes to their to the a spiritual bypass to their circumstance and the truth is that we have tremendous trauma and as the buddha taught life every life has suffering and some of them tremendous amount so part of the spiritual path is really facing and tending i won't even say healing but coming to terms with the trauma that's happened, and I'll tell you a couple stories. Um, I've worked together with some amazing men and teachers and over the years in Mosaic Multicultural Programs with Luis Rodriguez, who's one of the great Latino poets of our time, Michael Mead, the great mythologist, Maladoma Somme, did retreats for returning combat vets. And here's the story, you know, they come back, they get disgorged by a bus on a street corner, go back to their home, and they can't talk about what they did and saw and how they lived as a soldier. It's too overwhelming to them and to their family. And in these retreats, they came together and we created a kind of sacred container and said, this is a place where we can listen from the heart. And men would stand up once they felt safe enough and say things like, I can't tell you what I saw. And then something much worse than that, I can't tell you what I had to do. And I think of one guy standing up and saying, I was standing there guarding the entrance to this one, you know, military base and a, a group of Iraqis were coming. There'd been a bunch of suicide bombers. So we had to pat them all down and make sure it was all okay. And I told them to stop, shouted it in Arabic. I had my translator and this one old guy just kept coming. I said, stop, stop in every language. It keeps coming. And I shot him up and the women started shrieking and shouting. And then the translator said, they're all saying the old man was deaf. He couldn't Mm -hmm. hear you. And the guy started to weep and the other combat vets just held around him, and we actually had this beautiful African song of grief. Um, And he'd never been able to tell that story. And then what happened is that as the stories came out, and we had them write and tell their story and write a poem or write a story, at the end, we invited their families to come and for them to stand up and read a part of their story or whatever they had, and then made a ritual to say, all of you is welcome back. Everything that happened to you, we now know terrible things. We welcome you home. We made a, a welcome ritual. Um, so here's the, here's the reality about trauma. 
it has three or four dimensions. It's carried in the body. And so sometimes we, we need a place where we can scream and move and shake and shout, whether it's with a trauma therapist or in some other form where we let it out. It's carried in these deep emotions. And so we need to grieve and weep and rage and allow those. And it's carried in the stories. And our stories need to be witnessed by another or they're still, still stuck inside us somehow. And there is now beautiful trauma work, the work of Peter Levine, Somatic Experience, or yes. Cecil Vanderkoek. Anybody interested, read The Body Keeps the Score, a New York Times bestselling book on trauma. And you begin to realize that there's a path to feel the body and listen to it, to tell the story, to let the emotions out. And then as you do, all of a sudden, the gateway to a kind of freedom that says, all right, that's not who I am. That's what happened to me. Who I am is someone bigger than this that can pass beyond this. And it gives you a kind of a freedom. Yeah, got it. Beautiful, beautiful. When someone maybe gets stuck in certain emotions, um, anger, um, resentment, uh, hatred, uh, when someone is, feels stuck and maybe they've tried to process through it, like, like Jack, I, I've tried to let this go. I've tried to forgive, but I just, I just can't. And, and they're sincerely trying. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice can you give? Like how, how can someone move through an emotion or, or, or are there, maybe you can provide some guidance as to why we don't let go. Uh, in terms of what you've seen over the years? Are there any, any reasons that you see we don't let go and how can someone let go? Yeah, again, uh, you know, these are compelling questions for us as human beings. And I've certainly had my own anger and rage. Mm. I, I was a peacemaker in my family. We all had our strategies. One of my brothers got angry, which was the healthiest. My, you know, eventually got in a fist fight with my father when he got old enough to stop my father from beating my mother. Um, Some of them got depressed. You know, I was a peacemaker and I didn't think I would ever be like him until I did a lot of meditation. And then I found, Ooh, (laughs) all that rage was in there. I could have killed him and, you know, but I stopped it all. And, and I needed to feel it in some way. Um, I told my teacher when I was a monk about it, he said, great, great. You know, (laughs) he said, yeah, you know, you, you've got to learn about anger. I want you, it's the hot season. Go back to your little hut in the forest with the tin roof. <laughs> Put all your robes around you. Close the windows and the doors. Make it like an oven and sit there. And if you're going to be angry, be blank angry. He said, see the stories, feel the emotions. Let the whole thing, you know, tolerate. It's like the neuroscientists talk about expanding the window of tolerance until you can feel it and see it and tell its story. Um, so that was a piece of it. But then you say, well, what if you can't let go or you can't forgive? Yes. The first step is to forgive yourself for not being able to forgive. To start to, the, the deep spiritual practice is to start where you are and not with some idea of where you're supposed to be. To say this grief and pain is so great um, that I can't begin to forgive. And then you find, where is that held in your body? 
you know, and hold that with compassion and say, wow, you're protecting me by not forgiving. You're making sure that I don't get hurt again. Thank you for that. And you forgive yourself for that to start with. Um, and then you can begin to explore the energies of it. Maybe you take a notebook and you write at the top of the page, resentment, and you give yourself two weeks to write everything that you feel about resentment, or you put hatred at the top and you write everything that's hateful in you and you write and write and write and you let yourself feel it and you go, oh, that's what hatred is. I know you now, you know, or whatever it is. Um, forgiveness is a process. It doesn't mean that you forgive and forget. That would be a mistake. You actually have to remember because it keeps you safe. But instead, in the end, it's like the two ex-prisoners of war who met years later. They'd been tortured. And one of them said, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the second one said, no, never. And the first said, well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? Because the forgiveness is actually not about the other people. You may never have, may never talk to them again. Maybe you shouldn't ever. You should protect yourself. Mm. But it's about not carrying that red hot ball of hatred and anger in your heart um, because it poisons, it poisons you. And so first you just forgive yourself and you thank yourself for protecting in every way that you can. And then you realize that forgiveness is a process. It's like this guy who wrote to the IRS during the tax season. And he said, hmm. I haven't been able to sleep because I cheated on my taxes last year. So I've enclosed a $3,000 anonymous cashier's check. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> And, 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 and we think that somehow we're supposed to do something quickly, but the work of the heart requires respect for where we are and a compassion and tenderness. If you can't forgive, if there's that much re resentment, it's because that's how deep the grief is and the pain that's under it. Because that what, that's what makes us angry is that it's that we've been hurt or, or we're afraid of what's happened or we've been disrespected in a way that touched our soul in some terrible way and we've tried to protect ourselves so you hold that with tenderness and say yes and then you become something bigger than that not that you don't have that intelligence but that there's some wisdom even beyond that i have a little book called the book of the art of forgiveness that has forgiveness practices and teachings for anybody interested how, how do we develop the, oh, oh, yeah, what, what, what could you say about developing that compassion? Um, are, there any, are there any practices, anything we can do to develop more of that compassion that we're talking about? Because obviously, if let's say I hate myself and I've yes. been hating myself, like, okay, need to be compassionate. But for most people, they're not going to just I love myself now, truly. I mean, it's, it, as you say, it's going to be a gentle process. And so, you know, like if, if I wanted to develop endurance as a runner, I'd go one mile and two miles. And tell me about developing the compassion when I don't feel I have it. I was invited to be part of a, a group 
of Buddhist leaders, the first Buddhist, the first White House Buddhist leadership gathering wow. um, a couple of administrations ago, you can guess. It was with uh, President Obama. I don't think uh, the last one would have had this, but anyway. And um, there were some 120 leaders of communities, many of whom were doing beautiful service mm. work of soup kitchens and tending the homeless and doing all kinds of beautiful things, um, as well as meditation. And then it was my turn toward the end to kind of sum up in part what had happened and what was being offered. And I read a passage, the 2,600-year-old passage about wise society from the Buddhist teachings that talk about when people meet one another with respect, um, when they tend to the vulnerable and protect them, the children, the women, those who are ill, when they care for the environment around, when they follow the, the deeper teachings of, uh, of, the, of humanity, of the wise ones of the past. And I said, you can find it in every tradition. It's in the Tao in China, and it's in the Iroquois nation and the indigenous people of Africa and the Mayan teachings. It's, it's not a provenance of, any, provenance of any particular place. I said, here's what we as Buddhists have to offer to this. I said, because you all nod and say, this is a wise society. We have practices that show you teach you, help you how to do it, which is your question. So, for example, one of our traditions is called Mindful Self-Compassion. And there are online courses led by Chris Germer from Harvard and Kristen Neff. And they're brilliant. Mm. And they're a systematic way to learn how to hold yourself with your own common humanity as, as I think it's... Uh, W.H. Auden said, he talked about learning to love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart, um, <laughs> to realize that we're all in it together with our, our fears and our longings and our pain and suffering and our joy and our hopes. Um, and there are ways that you learn how to cold, hold yourself in a very simple systematic training, just like you would learn how to, you know, a martial art or you yes. said how you'd learn a sport. And there are many other beautiful trainings. I have online for free uh, with Tara Brock, a colleague, a 40-day program called Mindfulness Daily, 15 minutes a day. And in it, you learn how to quiet the mind and tend the heart, how to come back to be with your body in a compassionate and respectful way, how to deal with all the crazy thoughts and the emotions of anxiety and worry and, and resentment and how to hold all those with a compassionate attention. And by practicing it a little bit at a time, people go, oh, now I see. I don't have to get completely lost in that story and feel like I'm a failure or they're terrible and I'm just caught in that. I can actually become the loving witness of it, the wise one who sees this, who respects the pain and these things and does what's possible to make it better, but doesn't get caught in all of that in the same way. So you learn through training and practice as much as anything. Got it. Got it. You mentioned mindfulness for those, for those listening. Could you just define what you mean by mindfulness and perhaps the difference between mindfulness meditation? 
Well, there are lots of kinds of meditation. There's mantra meditation where you repeat a, a, a phrase, or there's meditation of prayer, or there's contemplation, there's visualizations. And um, mindfulness is a quality of attention that can be done in meditation, a mindfulness meditation. But it's actually a quality that we can use wherever we are. The language I, I like to use, Kut, is mindful loving awareness. It's a language also that my dear friend and colleague and mentor, Times Ramdas, used. And what it means is that we can pay attention to what's actually here with a, with a kindness, with a, with a compassionate or kind heart, and notice it without being so caught in it. What it means is that we become the loving witness of it all and say, wow, I really got caught in that one, or oh boy, that's painful, or look at that, isn't that amazing? Or we become mindful of our body, and as we get quiet, we do mindfulness meditation, we can listen and feel the places that are tight in our body and bring a loving awareness and listen, and they say, listen, you just need to slow down a little in your life, or you need to get, you know, you need to get help with this, or your body is asking for this. And mm. So it's a deep kind of listening, the body and heart, and mind, um, in which it's almost as if we become, I don't know, the sky. And in the sky, there are clouds that come of thoughts and emotions of weather and so forth. And we become the loving witness that's present quite fully and kind. And that allows for a space of, of tenderness and, and courage of a wise response rather than being thrown around by things we fear and like and don't like. So mindfulness is that spacious attention that says, yes, this is what's here. And who I am is the, the loving witness of it all. Got it. Got it. Walk me through a little bit, if you can. Um, let, let's say I have uh, an addiction. Mm. Okay. I mean, it could be, and I'm asking this because I, I, I would, I just, I want those listening to be able to ground it in their lives, you know, and take what you're saying yes. to, to apply. And so let's say, okay, Jack, I have an addiction. It could be anything. Cocaine could be cigarettes, could be chocolate, could be sex, could be shopping, you know, on, online, whatever it is. Yes. But it's, 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 it's like, it feels stronger than me. I, yes. I, 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 I mean, I'm mindful of it. I'm observant, but it just is overpowering. And, yes. and so I would love for you to like walk us through how we navigate that, that wave or those waves. Because in the moment of that impulse, it can feel so overwhelming at times, you know, the, yes. the, the that, that addictive feel tendency. It, yes. Yes, it can, and it is. So I just kind so of like, let's slow it down. You're yeah. asking these tough questions, which I love, because yes. they're really, really important. So first of all, um, we live in an addicted society. Mm. The level of speed and consumerism, and you're supposed to do this and not do that, and, you know, it's almost like the, the, the water we swim in has a certain kind of addiction to it. And your electronic devices are addictive and 
You know, you're you're a good person in society supposed to keep reaching for more and keep going. And okay, you use a little cocaine to get it done or whatever it is, or you use your your cigarettes or your sex addiction addiction or shopping in some way to kind of uh, soothe yourself. There's all kinds of reasons that addiction happens, many of them, you know, or some for medical ways people get caught in this terrible opioid epidemic and so forth, and then your body craves it. And you're right. You can't just say, all right, now I'm mindful of addiction. That does not work. Um, in fact, the, some of the very best addiction treatment that I see is the new treatment with psilocybin at mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins and NYU and UCLA and stuff. Extraordinary. But one of the things that helps a huge amount, and anybody who's kind of worked and tried to deal with addiction, is that you can't usually you can't do it alone all the spiritual traditions you know the the christian tradition when two or more are gathered in his name and the buddhist and hindu tradition of sangha and satsang and the jewish tradition of the minion and all the other ones um understand that the spiritual path it's deep healing and awakening we need to support each other which is why 12-step work is so powerful for many, many people. Um, and working the steps, a step at a time, uh, seeing honestly, seeing the, the amends we need to make, um, seeing the suffering that we've caused for ourselves and others telling the truth, and doing it over and over again. Um, and a, with a kind of willingness to say, Yes, there are times when this, the urge of this addiction, it grabs my nervous system and body and I can't, you know, stop. I need help. Yes. yes. Um, and finding that help and finding a program, a group, people that can help with that. Um, we, we, you know, this is really something we need to be realistic Mm. And we really need to be compassionate about because people don't want to be addicted, generally speaking. Um, they want their their heart and body and mind to feel good. And mm. and um and it's terribly hard to work with it, and it's and it's possible. Um so yeah, it is like we talked about with forgiveness. It's really a process. Um, what matters, and and uh, maybe this is part of the secret, is that somewhere deep in us, there is an intention that says, I want to be free. Mm. I want to remember who I am beyond the troubles that I have, the addictions or the other things, the hatred and so forth. There's some part of us that knows that that's not all of who we are, that there's something greater to us. And that longing and that deep knowing lead us uh, to join with others, to find ways that humanity has found, skillful means to help us. Got it. You mentioned um, psilocybin uh, a moment ago, and that, that just triggered a thought. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of a two-part question here for a second is, what do you feel is, is the role uh, or is there a role 
what do you feel is the role of, of um, plant medicine in, in the uh, spiritual development healing process, spiritual journey? Is it effective? Is it not effective? There's those that feel it's, 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 a, it, it's a detriment, those that feel it can serve. But part of that too, kind of connects to that question, is um, things like, let's say, marijuana. Um, I have some friends that they smoke wheat marijuana all the time. They believe it's a sacred herb, but, you know, they, they don't feel particularly present to me. They feel a little checked out of life. Um, and so how do you feel plant medicine affects our consciousness? How do you feel things like marijuana and even let's go to that, like alcohol affects yeah. our consciousness? Does it lower frequency vibration? Does it dull our mindfulness capacity for awakening? Um, kind of throwing a few questions in there, but they're still yeah. con connected. So speak, speak, well, speak to that, please. The answer, of course, mm. is found in people's direct experience. Mm. Uh, all of these things, this is, again, <clears throat> that kind of a Zen question, Coot. You know, is it good or is it bad? And yes. the, answer is, the answer is yes, you just answered it. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're Americans, we know how to misuse anything, right? And therefore, um, marijuana can be misused to space out and, you know, kind of as a denial of engagement with life. Uh, or in certain circumstances, it can bring a heightened presence and sensitivity. And I've seen it with the yogis in India who smoke hashish, which is basically cannabis in another form, and, you know, do their prayers to God. Um, the, the same, I mean, just alcohol it's it's amazing you know i i lived for a while in this little town in uh, california it had mm, three blocks of a main street and, and a couple of clubs and it had its you know the grocery and other mm -hmm. shops and things and there were like four bars and a couple of liquor stores it's like alcohol everywhere and this was um this was typical you know whether it's a uh a wealthy community or poor community, maybe in the poor communities even more so for for the reasons that it's so hard to tolerate the suffering. And as a little aside, people, you know, I always try to give money to people who ask on the street and so forth. Um, some people say, well, you know, maybe they're going to use it for a drink or a drink. <laughs> and I say, listen, baby, if I was sleeping on the sidewalk, I'd want a drink. I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm not going to judge them for that. Um, the, the thing is that, um, some of these substances, especially like psilocybin, and it's not for everybody, uh, but the latest research and Michael Pollan's wonderful book on how to change your mind and so forth show that some of these plant medicines, which have been used by shamans and indigenous cultures for, for thousands of years, have healing properties that are not just for the body, but they're healing for the soul and spirit. It can be ayahuasca or things like that. Um, the important thing is how it affects us and how we use it. And if you're really honest, and you know, I ask you and you ask yourself now, how does my drinking help or serve me? Or how does it... Uh, you know, how is it a detriment? How does it keep me from being 
present and loving and awake. And you'll know. Mm. You'll know if you're honest. Because some, someplace in us, again, my teacher called the, the one who knows, that place of understanding. If we take the time to quiet and, and listen inside, we can know. Anything that you do a lot gets pretty suspect to me. Um, where the sense is that you need it in some fashion. Well, what is, the, you know, how does it serve you? Yes. Um, and what would you have to experience and go through without it? And maybe that experience is what needs more consciousness and brings you to greater freedom. So. That's it. Um, I would love your perspective too. Um, you've been teaching for many years uh, on the path, spiritual journey. It's like I just ima I'm imagining here you are in this field of consciousness, you know, and you've, you've been for many years walking in the forests of consciousness. And for many of us, you've, you've walked the terrain before us and carved the pathway before us. And so based on that, what you've learned, what you've experienced, the teachers you've met, your own experience, your own practice, um, many times we have these preconceived ideas of what uh, spirituality is, of what we think spirituality should be, look like, and enlight enlightenment is. And we, you know, we chase this idea of enlightenment all time, all-knowing blissfulness all the time. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you have learned, observed, in terms of, we'll call them the myths of, of what we perceive, the misconceptions, the myths, pre preconceived ideas of what we typically might think enlightenment or the spiritual path is that you have found like oh mm, in fact that wasn't that wasn't quite what it is uh, well i i, I wrote a book a decade or two ago entitled after the ecstasy the laundry ah yes <laughs> which in part addressed this mm -hmm. question because of the notion that awakening or enlightenment is someplace out there that's just perennial bliss Mm -hmm. um, and if only you could get there and hold your breath and keep it and it wouldn't go. But of course, everything breathes. The heart breathes and heart pumps and the lungs breathe and the cerebrospinal fluid and the moon and the tides and the menstrual cycles and the stock market, it all opens and closes. And the idea isn't to have <gasps> this experience where things stop, but to become that place of love that's outside of time that allows it all and holds it in a kind of tenderness. So um, I remember those words from Don Juan Carlos Castaneda's teaching where he says, look at every path closely and deliberately and try it as many times as necessary and ask yourself alone one question that his benefactor asked him. Does this, path, does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it doesn't, it's of no use. Hmm. And so in, 
in my industry, I've gotten to hang out with lamas and mamas and swamis and papas and, you know, mystics of all different kinds. And some are really beautiful and some are beautiful when they're on stage and a little bit less so. And I found that the way mostly to understand who they are is to talk to their spouse. (laughs) Okay. What's that person? What's the Zen master really like at home? My, my own spiritual understanding has shifted from speaking of enlightenment as some state. I really think for me, what matters is love. Mm. Have I loved well? That's at the end of the life. My life, that's the question, you know, I'll ask. Um, this is what I want. I want to be loved. And the Dalai Lama says, be kind whenever possible. And then he laughs and he said, it's always possible. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the aspiration in, in some way. Um, through the ups and downs, the expansion and contraction, the opening and closing of your heart and mind, it does that. We're human. Can I hold all this with love? Can I hold others? And it doesn't mean you don't have courage and you can, can't stand up for what things that matter. In fact, that's what love is too. Martin Luther King said, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice is love in action. So love isn't passive. It's actually the force that lets people, mothers lift cars off their children. Perhaps in this world of, you know, warfare and killing and conflict, the only force that's a match for those who aren't afraid to kill is those who aren't afraid to love. We'll do that no matter what. And I think of my colleague and teacher Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia after the genocide when a quarter of the population, millions of people were killed, including all 19 members of his family, village temple burned, whole village burned. He led these walks of love. He took the hundreds of thousands of refugees who'd fled. And he said, you can't go back to your villages, uh, without healing. You can't go back in a bus or a truck or something. He said, Mm -hmm. you have to reclaim the land and to reclaim it, you have to reclaim it with your heart. And so he led these long pilgrimages on foot. He would be at the front ringing a bell and with each step as they walked through the killing fields and by the minefields, walking a hundred miles back to a village, a thousand people behind him, they would chant with his bell, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And they'd say it over and over, hatred never ends by hatred, no matter what's happened, but by love alone is healed. And this was a way of saying that there's something even bigger than the sufferings of the world, of the worst sufferings that you've had, that you can align yourself with and that you can actually become you can become a force for love wow inspiring jack i i have two final questions um a final question but but one i really 
felt moved to ask at this time. As, as a humanity, we've been going through a very intense time. Yes. 2020, COVID, people, you know, virus, people losing their jobs, lockdowns, uh, death. Uh, it's, it's been a challenging time on planet Earth right now for humanity all around the world. I just would love your, just your insight or your, your perspective as a spiritual teacher, as, as, as a wise man, as a wise, wise being. Um, your perspective on what, what the hell is happening? What, 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 what are we going through since, you know, March or February of 2020? Like, what's happening on planet Earth? What, what's really going on? You know, do, do you have insight, perspective that you can share to kind of help us a little bit? Coot, my friend, this is not new. We've been through this before. I remember my mother talking about World War I and the Great Depression and World War II and, you know, the nuclear arms race, us hiding our heads under desks when we were kids. And um, we've been through pandemics and typhoons, mm. earthquakes and floods for thousands of generations. It's in our DNA. It's in our ancestors, our African ancestors and our Mayan ancestors and, you know, our ancestors from all, all, of our, all of our histories. We have been through a lot. This is not new. And we know how to do this. And we do it by caring for one another. We do it by standing up for what's right. You know, it's not just the pandemic. The pandemic, if anything, has highlighted also the, the need for social justice. The Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the shift of consciousness that's absolutely critical. Two secrets to say. The first is to act well without attachment, without grasping the fruits of the action. This is the essence of this teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, but of all kinds of uh, spiritual teachings, to act beautifully, to plant seeds. Uh, as, as Thoreau said, if you promise me you have a seed there, I'm prepared to expect miracles. You don't get to see the tree that grows from the seed you plant. Maybe someone two generations from now will sit under its shade. But first thing is that we get to plant beautiful seeds, even in difficult soil. And we've done this, and we, we come together, and we know how to do it. And the other is that it needs to be done in what William Blake called the minute particulars. He said, general good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel. But if we are to do good, it must be done a day at a time, a moment at a time. And I don't mean good in a goody-goody way. I mean good because we have integrity and we're willing to love and stay connected no matter what. Can I, can I tell you a story? Please. We have time. Yes, please. So this is a, a beautiful story from Chris Whitmore. She writes, during my first year of teaching, a girl named Shay was assigned to my seventh grade middle school class. She was a desperately unhappy child and rebelled against the most basic rules, such as stay in your seat 
raise your hand to speak. Mm. Jay and I battled for control of the classroom. I tried every technique I knew, behavior contracts, praise, reprimands. None of them worked. When I called Jay's home, there were no parents, only once in a while an older sister. I wondered all that she had had to live through. I went to the school counselor who said I'd done my duty and offered to transfer Shay to another class, but I declined. She was my student, and I wasn't going to pass her on to someone else. In the faculty lounge, older teachers patted me on the back, thankful they didn't have Shay in their classroom. June finally came. On the last day of school, Shay was quick to head out the door. As I sat contemplating my failure with her, she walked back in. Oh, great, I thought. One last act of terrorism. In Shay's hand was a small bowl, the kind that students made in ceramics class. She thrust it into my grasp. Here, she said, it's the only thing I could think of to give you. I turned the bowl over and saw Shay's initials etched on the bottom. Thanks for trying to like me, she said. And before I could speak, she turned and left. After several more years of teaching, I went on to become a school principal and now a district superintendent. Shay's bull has never left my desk. So it comes down to this. When we're driving, when we go in the market, you know, the, the clerks and the all those people who are working so hard to stock the shelves and, and, you know, keep the society going. How do we treat each person, those around us, those we encounter? And then with that, that gives us the spirit to do it communally and collectively, whether it's in a spiritual setting or a addiction setting or a political setting. And all of those uh, are expressions of love. And in the end, that's what matters. That is what truly matters. Jack, thank you so much. I feel like uh, I'd love to talk with you for days. <laughs> it's been uh, a really, the conversation today has definitely touched my soul, touched my heart. And I know many folks listening in, you actually answered my, my questions, my final question I was going to ask you. And, and I really love what you said you know, in terms of your keys act well without attachment to the fruits. I think that's a key, it's, yeah, key yeah, takeaway. It's, not, it's not given to us. We don't, we don't control when the seeds will bloom. We don't control the outcome, but we yes. control our intention and the seeds we plant. So thank you, Kud. It's a, these are wonderful questions, and um, it's really a pleasure to be in conversation with you. What's the best way people can find out about you and your work and what you're up to and your teaching? I really want people to connect with you. Connect with you. My website is Jack Cornfield, K-O-R-N-F-I-E-L-D, jackcornfield.com. Um, there are some free classes like Mindfulness Daily for free that I mentioned. There's also a fantastic teach, two-year teacher training for those who want to learn to teach mindfulness that we do every couple of years. Um, and all kinds of other other meditations and practices and teachings on there. So I would welcome anyone who wants to visit and try them out. Awesome. Folks, that's uh, jackcornfield.com. We'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes. I, I highly, highly encourage you all 
to check out Jack's work and connect with him. He's, as you, as you can tell, such a dear and beautiful soul. I hope you all found so much inspiration from today's show. Do me a favor, uh, favor, folks. Share this episode with everyone in your life that you that you love and know, and on social media. Definitely uh, leave a, a review. Uh, write me an email, kublaxon at kublaxon.com. I'd love to hear your key takeaways from today's amazing episode with the amazing Jack Cornfield. And uh, I'll catch you in next week's episode of Soul Talk. Jack, thank you so much. Everybody, I'll see you next week. Love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.